or in the middle of this series called Hope in the Dark. Here at Mosaic, we love books of the Bible, and we've been working our way through the book of Acts. We did it last fall, took a little break, and now we're, we're back in that. And uh, today we'll be working our way through uh, Psalm 6, 7, and 8. Uh, but a couple weeks ago, I took my, my three-year-old, my six-year-old, and my eight-year-old to Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, along with Matt, who's up here leading worship, his son, and Jay and his son, and it was so much fun. Like, I don't know if you've seen Into the Spider-Verse, it's really different, it's unique, just the way they animated it. Uh, but, man, I, I love Spider-Man, I don't know about you, but I think he's one of the coolest uh, uniforms, like just his colors. You know, how amazing is that he shoots out these webbings and then he flies through the air, like, that's pretty cool, right? Like, how many guys can, like, hang upside down, clean the walls, like, Spider-Man's super cool. Well, in Into the Spider-Verse, the movie opens with this big montage uh, and introduces Peter Parker, kind of the real Spider-Man. And, and the scale of this opening is pretty enormous, in about 45 seconds, you really get like a whole superhero movie kind of crammed into that 45 seconds, guided by this very confident narrator, Chris Pine. Then the movie cuts to Miles Morales, who's going to be the new Spider-Man. Uh, he's a kid who, who's half African-American, half Latino. And, and things kind of slow down at, at, from this massive big scale to this, this one character. And he's the new Spider-Man, so the movie knows it. We, we have to fall in love with Miles really quickly. And so I, I love how they did this, that it shows Miles, he, he's drawing, he's being creative, and he's got his headphones on, and he's singing along to the song, but he doesn't know all the words. And so he's kind of messing up the words as he's singing along. It's just great. And, and, and we see Miles as, as this kid who isn't quite ready. He's not ready for school. He's not getting dressed pretty quickly. But we're going to see that he gets chosen, sort of, by a spider bite to be the next Spider-Man. And he's not ready for this mission. And, and, and the movie is kind of the hero's journey of a kid who's creative, who, who's figuring out his place in life, who has some issues with his dad. If you watch the beginning of that movie, him and his dad, they speak, but they never quite make eye contact, and they're always kind of out of frame for each other, and it's brilliant how, how they do that. But have you ever felt like that, where maybe you're trying to sing along to life, and you don't know all the words? Or maybe you're faced with an opportunity or something, and you just, I'm not quite ready for whatever this season is. Maybe it's becoming a parent for the first time. Maybe it's stepping into a new job. Maybe it's leaving a job or something. But I think we've all had those feelings of, whoa, I'm not ready for this. I don't know what to do. Well, fortunately, we're not the only ones who have these kind of feelings of, man, I don't know what to do. I'm just not quite ready. And I think that's what the early church leaders said. I think that's how they felt. A lot of them spent three years following Jesus. But man, they didn't know that, you know, after he rose from the dead, he's going to kind of shoot off into the sky. You know, Jesus is like, see you guys, here's your last order. And poof, you know, he flies up into the air. And in Acts 1 8, he gives them kind of their last, his kind of last marching orders. He says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria to the end of the earth. And I'm sure they're thinking, like, what? What is going on? And so we talked about how Jesus told them first to wait. To wait, wait for the Holy Spirit to come. And we said how a season of waiting is not a a wasted season, but it's a time of preparing ourselves. And so, so, so we saw that last fall. 
then the Holy Spirit comes upon them. And we said how we are anointed by the Holy Spirit. We are filled to do kingdom work, to push back the works of the dark, to be hope and the light. And, and so far in our story, what we've seen is, is mostly good things. Things are going really well for the disciples. And then two weeks ago, we saw how there's some conflict in the church. And, and the disciples, were, the apostles were kind of messing up. They were failing. They weren't doing a good job of distributing the wall. And they said, you know what? It is not right for us to give up preaching and praying to wait tables. That sounds kind of crazy, but they knew that's not where their giftedness was. And so every failure is a Holy Spirit opportunity. And, and the Holy Spirit empowers new leadership. And two weeks ago we saw that, how the apostles laid hands on the seven, Stephen and Philip and five others that I can't pronounce their names. And, 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 and new leadership, and, we, and, we, and we, we announced how we're having this internship program and we're gonna be raising up some new leaders and investing in them. And as a church, man, we wanna multiply disciples, we wanna multiply leaders, we wanna multiply ministries and churches, because we believe that's, we serve a God who multiplies. Well, that's kind of the journey we've been on. And we're gonna look at the life of Stephen and kind of what happens to him as he's thrust into leadership. And is he ready? Is he not for this opportunity? Uh, but before we do that, um, I posted this on, uh, on Facebook as a link, but I thought, man, it's really good. We're going to watch this five-minute video, and it's from uh, the, my friends from the, the Bible Project. Uh, when I was in Madison, Wisconsin, there was a pastor named Tim Mackey who was at a church in Madison, and, and he moved out to the West Coast to start making these films called uh, The Bible Project, and they're animated, and, and they're just super good. And so this video does a really good job of just kind of summing up where we are in our story as we walk through the book of Acts, because I know we're not here every week, and sometimes it's good to just get that eagle-eyed view of, of our storyline, and to remember that, you know, even as we go through chapter by chapter, we're part of a bigger story. And so go ahead and roll that video and kind of see the first part of our story. One of the earliest accounts about Jesus of Nazareth, his life, death, and resurrection, was written by a man named Luke. We know it as the Gospel of Luke. But Luke continued the story in a second volume, called the Book of Acts. And it's all about what Jesus continued to do after his resurrection. Acts begins with the disciples who are hanging out with Jesus, who's just come back to life, which is mind-blowing to imagine. And then for weeks, the risen Jesus kept teaching them about his upside-down kingdom the new creation that he launched through his death and resurrection. This is exciting stuff, and the disciples are ready to go tell the world. But then Jesus tells them to wait, and to stay in Jerusalem until they receive a new kind of power so they can be faithful witnesses to Jesus and his kingdom. Then he says that their mission is going to begin in Jerusalem, then move out to Judea and Samaria, and then from there out <coughs> into the nations. It's like a road map for the whole book of Acts. Then the disciples saw Jesus enthroned as king of all creation. So the disciples wait, wondering when this power is going to come. And then comes the time of Pentecost. So this is an ancient Israelite festival. It's during the early summer, and thousands and thousands of Jewish pilgrims would come back to Jerusalem from all over the world. All these different languages and cultures colliding in the city. And the disciples are together in a house, which is suddenly filled with rushing wind along with fire. Fire splinters off into tongues of fire hovering over people's heads. What's this all about? Yeah, so Luke is tapping into a repeated Old Testament theme. When God's presence showed up similarly at Mount Sinai, he made a covenant with Israel and gave them the Ten Commandments. Then later, when God's glory came in a pillar of fire that filled the tabernacle when he came to live among them. But that was just one pillar of fire, not many. 
Exactly. Luke's making an important point here. This is God's personal temple presence, God's spirit that was foretold by Israel's prophets. And now it's come to take up residence in the new temple of Jesus' body, that is, his people. They become little mobile temples where God now dwells. And they start to tell stories about Jesus, but they're speaking in languages that they didn't know before, yet all the visitors can understand them. What's this all about? Well, Peter gets up to explain that this is the fulfillment of Israel's hopes based on the scriptures. God's plan was always to use the unified family of Abraham to bring peace and justice to the world. But the tribes of Israel had been scattered because of the exile. Now here at Pentecost, representatives from all of the tribes come back together and they're introduced to their Messiah, the crucified and risen Jesus, so they can now become the restored people of Israel. And thousands of them start following the way of Jesus. Which brings us to Luke's tale of two temples. So you've got the temple that Herod built in Jerusalem, where Jesus' disciples worship like the rest of the Israelites. But now there's also Jesus' temple, which consists of people. This temple's meeting together in homes all over Jerusalem, and they were approaching life in a radical new way. Right, think about it. Many of these pilgrims aren't even from Jerusalem, so they've formed these new families, and they're all depending on each other. Yeah, people would sell their stuff, provide for the poor among them. They ate their meals together. They said their daily prayers together. They were learning from the apostles what it meant to live as if Jesus is the true king of the world. And it must have been exhilarating. But it wasn't all fun and games. Being God's temple is serious business, just like in the Old Testament. So you might know about that strange story in the book of Leviticus about two priests who disrespect God in the temple and then suddenly die. Well, Luke concludes here a similar story of two disciples who dishonor God's spirit in this new temple, and they suffer a similar fate. So there's corruption in the community, but the bigger problem is coming from the outside. Yeah, from the other temple. Its leaders are threatened by this new messianic movement, and so they arrest the apostles, they try to stop them. And this brings us to the final story in the Jerusalem section of Acts. We're introduced to a new disciple, Stephen. Oh yeah, Stephen. He's on fire. He steps up as a leader among the disciples to serve the poor, and he would go to the temple courts to teach people about the way of Jesus. So the temple leaders arrest Stephen, and they find false witnesses to accuse him of dishonoring Moses and of being a terrorist who's threatening the temple. In response, Stephen gives this powerful speech about how predictable this whole situation was. Yeah, he retells the whole Old Testament story, highlighting characters like Joseph, Moses, and the prophets, people who are consistently rejected and persecuted by their own people. Israel's been resisting God's representatives for centuries, and so their rejection of Jesus and now of his followers is a rejection of God himself. They get angry, and they start to execute him by picking up rocks and smashing him to death. And as he's dying, he commits himself to the way of Jesus, to suffer because of the sins of others. He even cries out, Lord, don't hold the sin against them. This is basically what Jesus said at his death. Exactly. Stephen becomes the first martyr of the Jesus movement. Many more to come. But this persecution contains seeds of hope which is why Luke introduces us to a new character here, a religious leader named Saul. He stands over Stephen's dead body and even approves of the whole thing. Wait, Saul, you mean the man who becomes the apostle Paul? Yes, Luke is showing how even this tragic murder can't stop Jesus' kingdom. And so many persecuted disciples scatter out of Jerusalem, and just as Jesus said, they head into Judea and Samaria. Now, the story of what happens there that's what the next section of Acts is all about. 
Isn't that awesome? And I love what they do. They do a great job of, of kind of distilling it down. So kind of here's where we are in the story. We're going to talk a little bit about Stephen. And uh, let's pick it up if you have your Bibles. You can follow along with me in 6, verse 8. And uh, if you don't have your Bibles, that's okay. Or you can follow along on the side of the uh, screen behind me, and the scriptures will be up there. Uh, Acts chapter 6, verse 8. And Stephen, one of those seven that was empowered for leadership, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Stephen has been commissioned by the 12 apostles, and the Holy Spirit has been working in and through Stephen. Stephen, God been working in him in a supernatural way. He's a natural man with these supernatural abilities. He's like you and me, just a regular guy, until the Holy Spirit fills him, and he yields and submits himself to the person, the presence, and the power of the Holy Spirit. And now God is using him to do amazing things through Stephen. Uh, it reminds me of, with great power comes great responsibility. Spider-Man right there. But for every move of God, there is opposition. Because we have a spiritual enemy. And our spiritual enemy does not like it when we push him back, when we take ground from the enemy, when God's kingdom is expanding into his territory. And so for every victory, there's a pushback. There's a counterattack by the enemy. Verse 9. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, these were slaves who were freed, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. We're going to see the devil's going to stir up some opposition. And these different groups are united in their purpose of coming against Stephen. They bring charges against him that don't hold up. They argue with him, but they can't win their argument because he's filled with the Holy Spirit. He speaks with truth and wisdom. And they sort of lose their public relations attempt to cause him to be discredited. Stephen defends himself, holds his ground, but they're not done. Now they're going to turn to false witnesses and false charges. They make up things that he didn't say, take things that he said and twist them in a way that wasn't how he intended they're doing the same thing to Stephen that they did to Jesus. When people falsely accuse you and they twist your words, they're doing to you the same thing they did to Jesus, the same thing they did to Stephen. Verse 11. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who saw, sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. In the middle of all this controversy, in the middle of all these false accusations being thrown at him, Stephen isn't defending himself. He's not getting angry. He's not getting upset. The Bible says that he has a face like an angel. He's maintaining his integrity. He's serving for God's glory. He wasn't vengeful. He wasn't defensive. He wasn't angry. The Bible says his face is like an angel. And then Stephen delivers this amazing message. I want to encourage you this, this week. Read through all. We don't have time today to go through all of it in, in chapter 7. But he's going to look back and, and talk about how Abraham and Moses and David, they all pointed to Jesus. The first thing, if you're taking notes, 
We, want, we want you to encourage you to take notes because we don't want you to just give you some information. We want to help, help you have a life of transformation. We want to help you know Jesus, know some stuff from God's Word, help you to be like Jesus, and then ultimately to do the things that Jesus did, call to action. And the first thing, if we, we want to be like Jesus, do the things that He did and His followers did, is number one, we need to be prepared to share your hope. Be prepared to share your hope. Here's the thing, you never know when you're going to be called upon to share the reason for your hope. There's no indication that Stephen knew he's going to be dragged in front of the council and, and, and he's going to have to preach this message. But see, Stephen was prepared. He knew his scriptures. And as a result, when the time came for him to speak, the Holy Spirit used what he had studied to speak through him. We need to be prepared. We need to know God's word, know what we believe. So people ask, hey, what is the reason for the hope that you have in God? How can you possibly believe this book that's 2,000 years old? We study, we prep, we learn. And then we also open ourselves to the Holy Spirit to give us the right words, to speak through us with love and with grace. The Apostle Peter says something similar in 1 Peter 3.15. He says, But in your heart's honor, Christ the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. If you take notes, I want you to write this down then. When we share the reason for our hope, when we debate, when we defend what we believe, we do it with gentleness and respect. We're not going to argue people to change their mind, most likely, when we do it with anger, with bitterness. But we share with gentleness and respect. We share our story. One of the reasons I believe that God's word is true, that the story of Jesus is true, is because these Jewish men and women who followed Jesus for three years saw him die a horrible death on a cross. They saw him buried. And then three days later, he rose again. And he spoke to them for 40 days. And they saw him ascend into heaven. And men like Stephen were willing to die for that. If you're here today and you have questions about Christianity and the Bible and God and all that, what I'd love to encourage you to do is just to kind of take a pin and, and all your questions about the Old Testament and, and creation and the age of the earth and and could someone really be swallowed by a whale? And could the Red Sea be parted and all that stuff? And simply explore the claims of Jesus. And explore how and why would these men and women die for Jesus? Why would they put their life in line? I believe it's because they saw Jesus is God. They saw him die and rose again. And they knew that that, that Jesus was their living hope. That's what Stephen knew. So Stephen is ready. When the moment comes, he respectfully walks these people through who knew the Bible. But he walks them through the Old Testament and how it points to Jesus. And he shows them how they missed Jesus, their hope. This Jesus who died, but he rose again. How did they respond? Chapter 7, verse 54. Now, when they had heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, 
gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Son of Man was the favorite nickname that Jesus gave himself. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And that's Dr. Luke who wrote this, his way of saying that he died. But he wouldn't stay dead. Someday he would rise again. Jesus comes back. Chapter 8, verse 1. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. The second thing I want us to learn as we look at the life of the early church. I think we need to learn to lament. To learn to lament. Verse 2, devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. It's a quick verse. We can easily skip it. I'll take a couple minutes to talk about that. Back in Acts 2, on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit shows up, 3,000 people turn towards Jesus. Man, that's a day of celebration. That's, that's a wedding day. It's a day to celebrate. This is a funeral day. Stephen is dead. The church is bleeding. These wolves have attacked the church. The sheep are scattered. This new alpha male leading the charge of opposition. Saul has stepped into prominence. I'll take a moment to pause here. I think we in the West, we don't know how to lament well. Sometimes you might turn the TV and see a tragedy some Eastern cultures, and you see men, they're crying, they're in public, they're wailing, they're mourning, they have a process for that. And honestly, we tend to not. We tend to celebrate publicly and lament privately. We tend to celebrate publicly and lament privately. We make our wins known to everyone, but we keep our losses to ourselves, we keep that private. But what do you do when you're struggling and dying? What happens when you don't get cured of cancer? What happens when you don't live happily ever after and you get served divorce papers? What happens when you don't get pregnant? When you have another miscarriage? What happens when it feels like everything is falling apart, like evil is winning, that your heart is bleeding? The answer is lamenting. It's not a way of denying reality, but walking through it. Well, says we need to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. See, everyone wants to buy the book or listen to the sermon on three ways to avoid all suffering and hardship and walk around the valley of the shadow of death. I don't think people really want to buy the book or hear the sermon on three ways to suffer well and walk through the dark valley. But that's what Jesus did. We need to walk through the darkness, the pain, the grief, the loss, the mourning, the hurt. That's the only way through it. Just like Jesus did. In the Bible, there's a whole book of the Bible called Lamentations. It's about lamenting. 
There are large sections of the Bible that are journal entries of people that are lamenting, like Nehemiah. The book of Psalms is a collection of 150 poems and songs. The largest category of these are laments. People are crying out to God in frustration and hurt and anxiety, grief, loss, and mourning. It's an act of faith to cry out to God in those moments just like Stephen did. He's talking to Jesus. I referenced this a couple weeks ago. There's this great YouTube video. It's a conversation between Eugene Peterson, one of my favorite authors and pastors who went to heaven last year, and Bono, the singer of YouTube. They talk about some of these psalms, the imprecatory psalms and the psalms of mourning. They say it's a way of cursing without cursing. It's a way of being honest with God about your feelings, what you're going through. It's not denying these feelings of grief and loss and hurt and pain. But it's being real with God. That's what God wants us to be honest, to be real with Him. Say, God, I'm bleeding here. I'm struggling. I don't understand. Depending on how you're wired, if you don't mourn, if you don't lament, you can end up in depression. For others, depending on how you're wired, if you don't mourn, if you don't lament, you'll end up in anger. If you don't go through those emotions, if you aren't real and honest, you're probably going to end up in either depression or anger. See, it's purifying for the soul to mourn, to grieve, to lament. Ecclesiastes 7.3 says this, Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of faith, face, the heart is made glad. A sad face is good for the heart. There's something cleansing about tears, about being honest, about getting it out there. In the Bible, we see Jesus lamented over Jerusalem. He wept over it. When his close friend Lazarus died, he shed tears. He lamented the death of his friend. When Jesus knew the cross was before him, he was about to atone for the sins of the world. He had his lamenting moment in the Garden of Gethsemane with the Father, being honest yet humble, submissive yet truthful about how this is so painful. Lamenting is how we deal with evil, injustice, sin, oppression, death, grief, mourning, and loss in our world. It's not pretending that everything's okay. It's good to take time with friends to lament, to mourn, to share the pain, to say, man, this is hard. We're still not pregnant. We lost another baby. We're still out of work. Those people are still spreading false lies about me. But that man, Saul, who gave approval of the execution, we're going to see, spoiler alert, in the next couple weeks, he becomes this amazing church planter who writes half of the New Testament named Paul. And he writes this in 1 Thessalonians as he's writing to one of his churches. In 4.13, he says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. We lament, we grieve, we process, we... We share our feelings of hurt and pain and frustration and confusion. But we don't do it as those who have no hope. Because we have hope in the darkness. Jesus is our hope. We know that Jesus rose from the dead. 
that we will rise again. We know that Jesus sees all, that he knows all. And we know that ultimately things will be made right. That when we die, we'll stand face to face with Jesus. And so we, we grieve, we lament, but we don't do it as those who don't have any hope. And number three, we learn that love is our ace. Love is our ace. As your pastor, I don't want to be just some sage on the stage. I want to be a guide on the side. What does that mean? Man, I don't have all the answers. I'm walking through this with you. And I'm learning, what does this mean? I've been following Jesus for 25 years. I've been in pastoral ministry for 18 years. And I'm still asking, I'm praying, God, what does it mean to truly love, to love my neighbors, to love the people in my church, my family, to do life together? And if you look at Stephen, this is the kind of love he had. Chapter 7, verse 16, falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Man, what kind of love does that take, that as people are smashing your face with rocks, as they've made up lies about you, as you are dying, you're filled with so much love, so much of the way of Jesus that you don't respond with violence, Instead, you say, Father, don't hold this against them. They don't know what they're doing. For those ladies who went to see the IF conference, one of the speakers, Angie Smith, she shared about her love of solitaire. And Kristen showed me the clip, and first I was like, man, who is this lady who has so much time to play solitaire? Like, who has time for that? And she, she goes on and on, I was like, what's her point? But she shared how she realized that love is our base. That's our trump card. See, when we start with love, that's where everything builds on it. In solitary, you have to start with an ace, then everything else builds on that. If we just try to argue with people, if we just try to get our point across to defend ourselves, people aren't going to listen to us. But when we start with love, with radical generosity of love. That's when people will start to listen. That's when they'll ask, how can you respond this way? And Andy Smith shares that when you start with love, when you start with that ace card, in Psalter, when you finish it up, the last card you play is the king. When we start with love, People will see the king. Stephen, he shows love to these religious leaders, to Saul, who approves of his execution. And Beth's going to talk about in two weeks how ultimately Saul saw the king and it turned everything around for him. And he changed his whole life. And he started serving this Jesus. He taught of a different, radical way. 
When we start with love, people will see the king. One of the books I've been reading uh, for a little while now is a, is a book called Rising Strong by Brene Brown. Any Brene Brown fans in the house? Uh, it's really good. I encourage you to check it out. Um, she shared this great story that as a speaker, she was asked to go to this conference and speak, and, and she wasn't sure she wanted to do it. But also she's like, okay, fine, I'll do this, because they reminded her, you know, hey, remember we were your fans before you were kind of a, a big dog. And so she kind of felt guilted into it. And they said, just so you know, all our speakers share rooms, hotel rooms. And she's like, ah, I hate, I hate this, but okay, I'm gonna do it. Well, she shows up in her hotel room. So Brene Brown, she shows up in her hotel room, and the other speakers are there. And her muddy boots are on the couch. So Brene's like, oh man, this is not gonna go well. And her roommate's eating this giant cinnamon roll with, with frosting everywhere. And so Brene's like, hi, nice to meet you. And she's like, ah, my hands are dirty. I'm not gonna shake your hand. And so her roommate pops the last bite of cinnamon roll into her mouth and, and then sees her gross hands full of cinnamon roll gooeyness and kind of looks around and then just wipes her hand on the, on the couch. Yeah, exactly. And then she sees she doesn't get quite all of it off. So she looks for another spot on the couch that wasn't dirty and wipes the hands off again. And Brene is just like, oh my word. And the woman just looks at her and is like, yeah, not our couch, right? And so through this, Brene is just like, this woman is awful, she's evil, and it just kind of wrecks her whole weekend and she's in the airport thinking about this. And so she, she talks to her counselor about it the next week, and she's like, man, this woman is awful. And he's describing the whole situation, and she did some other stuff that's not good. And her counselor is listening, and she's like, why does this bother you so, so much? And ultimately, her counselor says, Brene, do you believe that she was doing the best that she can? She's like, no, absolutely not. Like, she's not doing the best she can. And she's like, I want you to think about that. And so Brene's a researcher, and so she asked all these people, like, do you think people in life generally are doing the best that they can do? And ultimately, as she, as the book talks about this a little bit, goes through her research and, and realizes that, you know what? It's better to go through life thinking that people generally are doing the best that they can. They're not trying to be evil or bad. What does that mean to live the way of Jesus, to live with radical love? And here's what she says. She says, this doesn't mean that we stop helping people set goals or that we stop expecting people to grow and change. It means that we stop respecting and evaluating people based on what we think they should accomplish and start respecting them for who they are and holding them accountable for what they're actually doing. It means that we stop loving people for what they could be and start loving them for who they are. It means that sometimes when we're beating ourselves up, we need to stop and say to that harassing voice inside, man, I'm doing the very best I can right now. She goes on to say, she talks about what is the hypothesis of generosity? It's asking what is the most generous assumption that you can make about this person's intentions or what this person said? What is the most generous assumption you can make 
about this person's intentions or what this person said. What I realized, she goes on to say, was that a generous assumption without boundaries is another recipe for resentment, misunderstanding, and judgment. She talks about the needs to have boundaries, to have integrity. And boundaries are just a fancy way of saying, letting people know what is right and what is wrong. Here's what you can do, and here's what you can't do. But I believe she nails this. Because sometimes it's easy to just talk about love in the way of Jesus. Without getting down to brass tacks, what does this really mean? I think it means being generous in our assumptions. Of saying, you know what? That person emailed me. It was a short, terse response, my coworker. But you know what? I'm going to give them the most generous assumption I can give. Maybe they had a rough week. Maybe they're going through a tough time. Maybe their marriage is on the rocks. And instead of responding with anger or resentment or some expectations that I have, I'm going to be as generous as I can with my love. Now, again, we need boundaries. We need integrity of our own values. This week, I want us to do the hard work to sit and think, what does it mean that love is our ace? What does it mean to show love? What does it mean to be generous with our assumptions? To say, you know what, I think people generally are, they're trying to do the best they can. And when we have some kind of standard that we're trying to hold people to, some expectations, we're not doing anyone any favors. Instead of loving them for how they could be, loving them for how they already are. This last couple weeks, I've been in my daily Bible reading, reading through 1 Corinthians. And as I prepared for this message, it just kind of happened to be reading through chapter 13. And man, this hit me. I'm going to invite the band to come up as I just read through this. 1 Corinthians 13. You probably heard this in a wedding somewhere. But it says, If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and I, if I deliver my body to be burdened but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Verse 13. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. My assignment for you this week is to read 1 Corinthians 13, particularly 4 through 7. And what I want you to do is something my friend Joel recommended. And put your name instead of where the word love is. Justin is patient and kind. Justin does not envy or boast. Justin is not arrogant or rude. Justin does not insist on his own way. He's not irritable or resentful. Rihanna does not rejoice at wrongdoing or rejoice with the truth. 
Rihanna bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Now you need to not read on to verse 13, otherwise you'll say the greatest of these is Rihanna. Thank you. Say his wife, his husband. But you know what though? As I did that this week, it really didn't help me. If I'm reading to myself, Eric is patient and kind. Eric does not insist on his own way. Eric is not irritable or resentful. Eric bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Man, it makes it so much more personal. And then the next verse. Pursue love and earnestly desire spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. In this book of Acts, we've been talking about spiritual gifts and, and how God equips us. And Paul, the man who authorizes this execution, he's saying love is the building block. Love is where we start. And even in this church plan where there was some misuse of spiritual gifts and some things were going on that was crazy, he still says pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. Wherever you are in your relationship with God and, and as we've been talking about the Holy Spirit and spiritual gifts, I want to encourage you to desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. What is prophecy? One definition is something that God brings spontaneously to mind or reveals to the speaker. But it's not the same as God speaking because it's being transmitted through human speaker. There can be mistakes. So it must be tested and evaluated. Prophecy is used to encourage, to build up, and comfort the gathered community of God. One of the ways we show love to each other is we allow ourselves to be in tune to the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit brings a word of encouragement, of correction, a prayer, as a body, we, we come to each other and say, hey, here's a word I believe God has given me. We do with humbleness, with hands open. I think God wants me to pray this over you, for you. And it's a way of speaking life and encouragement and hope and love to one another in our community. That's my prayer for our church. That we pursue love. We earnestly decide the spiritual gifts. That we speak truth and life over each other. That we ask how can we be patient and kind, not arrogant, not insisting on our own way. Bearing all things, believing all things, hoping all things, enduring all things. That's what love looks like. And if we start with that, everything else builds on that. And ultimately, people will see our King. Would you stand with me? I'm going to pray, and then we're just going to spend some time asking the Holy Spirit to come in, to fill us. Because we can't do this on our own strength. We earnestly desire love and the spiritual gifts. We say, Holy Spirit, come fill me, come fuel me. We've got about 15 minutes. I want to encourage you to sit, to linger, to not duck out. You know, the roads are a little crazy, but you know, probably raising canes won't be you know super full right now, so you don't have to duck out fast. Your kids are okay back there.
sit. And I'll, I'll encourage you to pray, God, give me your spiritual gifts. And maybe God will reveal something in your mind, a word for someone, a word of encouragement, of correction, a prayer, something. And instead of just dismissing that, maybe even in this time of worship, you'll walk over and say, hey, I don't know, maybe this is from God, maybe this is my own mind, I'm not sure, but I think this is from God and, and, and this is what he wants me to speak over you. We're learning together what it means to be a community on mission so that people will see our King. Let's pray and then let's spend some time just praying for God's Holy Spirit to fill us with the fuelless. God, I thank you. You are here. God, I thank you that we are just learning together what it means to be your church, your community. God, I pray that above all else, we would pursue love. God, that we'd start by loving you, our Savior, who died on the cross so that we didn't have to pay the price for our sins, but then you rose again. God, I thank you for Dr. Luke in the book of Acts that tells us of these early Jewish men and women who saw a beaten and broken body on a cross, but then saw that you rose again victorious three days later. And because of what they saw with their own eyes, man, they were able to set an empire on fire with a new way, a way of love. So God, we want to be that same family on mission together, pointing people to you, our risen King. And God, as we sing, as we pray, fill us with your Holy Spirit. And God, I pray that we'd be a community just speaking life and truth over one another. God, that we'd pursue spiritual gifts, that we would do this in your strength, not in ours. Pray God. Amen. Let's sing together.